Well, if you have a Bible, uh, digital or paper, open it to Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6. Our study this morning will be Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6. Uh, thank you for those kind words. Uh, Sally and I were traveling uh, the 10 hours from West Virginia uh, down to Tennessee yesterday. It, it struck me that uh, sometimes when we're part of a place, part of a community, we don't realize how much we've been influenced by that community until we leave and then return. And so I wanted to express our deep appreciation for the positive influence you've been on our family uh, in the past, and some of you continue to do that in the present. And We're always uh, delighted to be back. You're all invited to uh, come and walk the country roads of West Virginia with us. Just don't all come the same weekend. C.S. Lewis, uh, author of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, Screwtape Letters, the British atheist uh, turned Christian, perhaps the foremost apologetic writer of the mid-20th century, tells of being at the beach one day watching a group of children at play. And, and they weren't playing out in the surf, enjoying the water. Uh, they weren't uh, on the shore building sandcastles weren't chasing sea crabs, they weren't picking up seashells, but the children were at the beach playing with broken pieces of glass. Someone had been to the beach earlier in the week, they had littered, among the litter was, were some glass bottles, they were broken, and the children had come to the beach and were playing with broken pieces of glass. And Lewis's point is that the world is filled with trash, and children are, are so easily influenced, so impressionable, that if not properly guided, they'll end up coming to the beach and playing with broken pieces of glass. I read a little piece back in 1997, actually read it in a lesson, and I thought it was particularly pertinent at the time. And then recently I came across this paragraph again and I thought this is more relevant today than it was back in 1997. It's by the Search Institute out of Minneapolis. It's called Starting Out Right. It's not long. It says, never, never have we exposed children so early and relentlessly to cultural messages glamorizing violence, sex, possessions, alcohol, and tobacco with so few mediating influences from responsible adults. Never. Have we experienced such a numbing and reckless reliance on violence to solve problems, feel powerful, or be entertained? Never have so many children been permitted to rely on guns and gangs rather than parents, neighbors, religious congregations, and schools for protection and violence. Never have we pushed so many children onto the tumultuous sea of life without the life best of nurturing families and communities, caring schools, challenged minds, job prospects, and hope. The world is filled with trash. It, it's striking that in a time in which we live where, where we have smartphones that have apps on them that can do almost, almost anything, it seems, when we can erect a series of windmills across every windy ridge to generate electricity, when we can drill uh, two or three miles vertically into the earth and then a half a mile horizontally find natural gas and bring it to the surface, 
when we can make an automobile that will go into a parking garage and park it itself, park itself, that we seem to be unable as a culture to raise a, a generation to focus on the treasures of life and not on the trash. And, and I think that raises some, some critical questions for us, questions for us as Americans. How is it that in such an in ingenious, prosperous, gifted country that we raise generation after generation after generation to grow up and get involved in the vice, the promiscuity, the crime, the violence, the drugs, the alcohol of life, and for most part to live lives of quiet desperation. And I think it raises questions for us who are Christians. Is God pleased with the way we're raising children in this country? Does the way we're raising young people have anything to do with Christian people like you? Does anything to do with me? Does it have anything to do with the Church of Christ? Does it have anything to do with the Highland Church of Christ? And, and perhaps the most pertinent question we could ask this morning is, does the Bible have anything to say? Well, there are a number of texts that we might go to, and you may be thinking of some of them. But I wanted to go to Deuteronomy chapter 6 because it's not only one of the longest texts about passing on the faith to the next generation, but it's also a text that seems to be the granddaddy of many other passages in Scripture. The book of Deuteronomy is the record of Moses giving three lessons on one day on the plains of Moab at the end of 40 years of wilderness wandering on the eve before the invasion of the promised land. And the generation that, is, that had come out of Egypt is all, has all passed away in the wilderness. And the people who stand before Moses on the plains of Moab are the next generation, the young people. And the central concern of the book of Deuteronomy is how do we pass on the faith to this next generation of Israel? How do we get the children of Israel to focus on the treasures of God rather than the trash of Canaan? And we look at chapter 6 because it seems to be the book in miniature. It seems to be a microchasm of all that Deuteronomy is trying to say. And what we find in chapter, chapter 6 of Deuteronomy are five principles for passing the faith on to the next generation. They're not hard, not difficult to understand, won't take us long to go through them. The first one is in verses 1 through 3. And the principle here seems to be that young people must see the faith being lived out. Moses calls for them to obey the commandments. He's just listed the Ten Commandments in chapter 5. And he says, obey the statutes and ordinances. He'll list those in chapters 12 through 26. But most of these first three verses is given over to the benefits, the advantages of doing what God says. It'll go well with you. You'll live long. You'll have the land. But verse 2 is particularly important because he says, when the young people see the commandments, statutes, and ordinances being followed, then they will come to fear God. That's number one. Children must see the faith being lived out. The second one is in verses 4 through 6 of, of Deuteronomy chapter 6. And the principle here is that young people must be taught. These lines may be some of the most important and oft-quoted lines in all of the Bible. Jesus will quote some of these lines in Matthew chapter 22. And after quoting them, he will say, he will say right here, right here we have the great commandment of both testaments, right here. 
Luke chapter 10, somebody else quotes these lines, and Jesus says right here, we have the words of eternal life. Listen to what Moses says, Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your hearts And you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise and you you shall bind them as a sign upon your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes and you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gate. And then these words become the foundation of most of what the Bible says about passing on the faith to the next generation. And when Israel becomes the Jewish faith in exile, They begin to read these verses twice every day because they recognize the importance of teaching young people as a key element of passing on the faith to the next generation. That's number two. Number three is found in verses 10 through 15. And the point here is a warning that affluence will cause spiritual amnesia. Young people need to know that. And so he talks to the young people right on the verge of entering the land. He says, in a few days, you're going to be moving into cities you didn't build, living in houses you didn't construct, drinking water from cisterns you didn't hew, eating food from vineyards and trees you didn't plant. And he says, you will have a tendency when you get all those things to forget God. Verse 11, when you eat and drink and are full, take heed lest you forget the Lord. And so he warns the young people about the dangers of affluence, that it will cause them to focus on the gift and not on the giver. That's number three. Number four, verses 16 through 19, is another warning a warning that a crisis of life will precipitate a crisis of faith. He takes them back to Massa in the wilderness. They had no water. We can't live very long as people without water. And so this particular group of people, when they didn't have any water, decided that they would give up their faith. Crisis of life creates a crisis of faith. And they didn't realize that they needed faith as much, perhaps in this case more, than they needed water. That's number four. And then number five finishes off the chapter, 25 20 through 25, and the principle here is that young people must understand that faith is based upon grace. And so Moses imagines a child comes with a question, children then, children now, they ask questions. Young people ask questions. The question is, why do we do what we do? What's the meaning of all this stuff? Moses, in effect, tells a little story. It's found three times in the Pentateuch. There really seem to be three points to the story. We were slaves in the land of Egypt. God set us free. He did it by his grace. We were homeless out in the wilderness. God gave us the land. We got it by His grace. We were clueless about how to live life. God gave us His instruction book. He did it by His grace. Young people must understand that faith is based upon grace. Well, it's quite a list. Quite a list. Children must see the faith being lived out. Must be taught about the living God. Warned about the dangers of affluence, about how a crisis of life will create a crisis of faith, and taught that Faith is based upon grace. Quite a list. So what's it mean? What do we do with it? I think one thing is that it gives us hope. Sally and I have been traveling around the country, preaching nearly every weekend, mostly in the Northeast. Run into lots of Christian people who are unhappy with about the way our culture is going. They don't like what the government's doing. They complain about the media. They complain about the culture. 
And, and I share many of those concerns about what's going on in the world in which we live. But when I come back to Deuteronomy 6, I don't find Moses complaining and moaning. He has a plan of action, something that will give us hope. I remember when we lived in Memphis, one, one day I took a tour of one of the housing projects downtown. It was substandard housing. The buildings were not in good repair. There was an open sewer. Remember the stench? There were broken windows, glass all over the playground. Children everywhere, young, old, big, small. And I remember our, our tour guide pulled us aside near some children, and she said, I've been living in this housing project for 17 years. And I can tell you that these children don't know about Jesus. They think Jesus is a swear word. And their parents don't care about Jesus. And, and their neighbors don't care about Jesus. And she said, these children, if they follow the ones that have gone before them, they're going to grow up and be involved in crime and drugs and alcohol and end up in prison. Now, I remember going back to our house in East Memphis that day, just terribly discouraged. I thought, is this what the future holds? Is this where our country's going? Is, is this the direction of our lives? And then I read Deuteronomy 6. And I thought, if the children could just see the faith being lived, they can be taught about the living God, warned about the dangers of affluence and the problems of life, taught about grace, the world can be a different place. Right now, there's a little boy somewhere right in our community. And, and that little boy could grow up to be um, the next Moses, the next David, the next Paul. He grew up to be the next C.S. Lewis, uh, the next Burton Gooch, next E.H. Himes. Grew up to be uh, the next president of Harding Academy, next teacher at Harding Graduate School, next elder preacher at this church. Or he could grow up and be the next Saddam Hussein, the next Fidel Castro, the next Adolf Hitler, become the next drug lord in the city of Memphis, next inmate at the penal farm, next person pulls a gun, kills somebody you know. Right now, that little boy is pure and innocent like a blank sheet of paper. But there's one thing absolutely for sure. That little boy is going to be taught. He's going to be taught. He'll be taught by a low life, by an atheist, by a Christian basher, or he'll be taught by a godly sixth grade coach, or by a Sunday school teacher, or by one of you. And right now, Within just a few minutes of this building, there's a little girl, and you'll, you'll probably drive by her house on the way to lunch. And she could grow up to be the next Sarah, next Hannah, next Mary, grow up to be the next professor at Ohio Valley University, next Sunday school teacher in your congregation, next replacement for Michelle Betts. Or she could grow up to be a streetwalker, a Christian basher, a secularist. And right now, that little girl is 
is just innocent. And she's pure. She's like uh, an empty screen waiting for you to enter some type. One thing's absolutely for sure about that little girl. She will be taught. She will be taught. She'll be taught by somebody who is ungodly or somebody who's godly. The other thing I take away from this text is that Moses here in Deuteronomy 6 is addressing the whole community. He's addressing all Israel. It's not a text written just to parents. Parents are included. But this is a text written to everybody in the community because it's the responsibility of everybody in the community to raise up the next generation, the old, middle-aged, everybody. I don't know if you remember uh, Larry Crabb. He was an evangelical writer about Christian counseling 10, 15 years ago. And he, he tells uh, of uh, growing up as a teenager in an evangelical church. don't know which one. And, and as a teenager, he was shy, withdrawn, didn't like public speaking. And so one day they came to him and said, uh, said Larry, we want you to say, say the prayer at the Lord's Supper. He didn't want to do it, had stage fright, didn't want to do it. They pressured him. He finally agreed to do it. He rehearsed his prayer over and over again, came before the church, and this was basically his prayer. Dear God, Father, we thank you for dying on the cross, and we thank you, Jesus, for raising the Holy Spirit from the dead. And as soon as he prayed it, he knew he got it wrong. That wasn't what he believed. He just, he just got confused, just was nervous, got it wrong. And he said, he said in his mind, he said, the elder's going to pigeonhole me after church and accuse me of false teaching. And so the rest of the service, he was drawing up plans to use the least used hallway to get to the least used door to get out of the building without confronting an elder. They sang the final song. Larry, Lamb, uh, Larry, Larry uh, Crabb was up and running, got to the door, and there was Elder Jim Dunbar. He backed Larry in the corner, put his finger in his face. He said, Larry Crabb, I want you to know, whatever you do for God, whatever you do for his kingdom, I'm behind you 1,000%. Jim Dunbar knew about Deuteronomy 6. When Sally and I uh, got married, moved to Memphis, became interns with this church. I was working with the education program. But, but I remember back at the old building, the old auditorium on Highland Street, uh, there was a little boy about three or four years old. His name was Jerry Lamb, blonde hair, blue eyes. His parents were uh, Jim and Linda Sill Lamb, and his grandfather was Linda Ramsey. Uh, one of the elders had a profound influence in me. And, and I remember, I just vaguely remember, that after worship would be over, Little Jerry Lamb, about three or four, would come up and he'd climb up on the pulpit and play with the microphone. And he'd climb up on the communion table and play with the stuff that was there. And it really bugged people uh, that he did that. But it wasn't really my responsibility, and so you know, I just didn't think much about it. Fast forward 20 years, and Jerry Lamb, college student, comes back to Highland as a youth intern one summer. Goes to Camp Highland over in Arkansas then. And uh, got in, into a cabin with a group of 12-year-old boys. And there was one boy, tall for his age, but awkward. And, and he kind of gravitated toward that boy, taught that boy about the living God. All the Highland teens came back from camp, and that 12-year-old boy said, I want to be baptized in Jesus Christ, give my life. And he was. 
Fast forward 20 more years, and, and that boy, that 12-year-old boy, it was tall for his age, now married, has a little daughter of his own, and he and his wife are in charge of the benevolent program at their church, and they're faithful uh, followers of Jesus Christ. Well, that 12-year-old boy was Daniel Shank. He was my son. And I'm forever grateful to Jerry Lamb, with whom I have no blood relationship, for helping me pass on the faith to the next generation. Uh, Senator Sam Nunn was from Georgia. He was speaking at the National Prayer Breakfast in 1996 in Washington, D.C. It was during the time of the Bosnia-Serbian War. And during his speech, he told about an American reporter who was covering the war. It was on the streets of one of the cities, and he heard a shot ring out. And down at the end of the block, he saw a little girl that had ventured out on the street, and, and she fell uh, hit by the sniper's bullet. And so he threw down his pad and his paper and his pencil, and he, he ran down the street. And just at the same time, a, a Serbian man came out of one of the houses, and he got there first, and he gathered the little girl up. And the American arrived, and the American said, I have a car. I'll take you, take you to the hospital. And so they got in the car, going down the street, and the man in the back seat holding the bleeding little girl, said, hurry, my friend. My little child is still alive. And so the American drove a little faster, and, and they turned the corner, and the, the man in the back seat said, hurry, my friend. My, my, my little girl is still breathing. And a little bit further down the road, the man in the back seat pleaded, hurry, my friend. My little girl is still warm. And a little bit further, closer to the hospital, the man one last time said, hurry, my friend, my little girl is growing cold. And they were too late. And the two men were in the, in the restroom washing off the girl's blood. And the man from Serbia, speaking to nobody in particular, said, I now have the awful task of telling her parents that their little girl has died and they will be devastated. And the American stopped, astounded, turned to the man and he said, but I, I thought she was your little girl. And the man said, aren't they all our children? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. Let's stand. Glory to God, all glory to God, all glory to God.